morning, everybody. Happy hump day. Welcome to the News Agenda with me, Fleet Street Fox. And today I'm joined uh, for a long time in a long while, actually, by the Mirror's Deputy Online Political Editor, Lizzie Bucken. Morning, Lizzie. Hello. Now, this is the People's Pay-Per-View, so get into the comments, ask us your questions. We'll do our best to answer them for you. Um, Lizzie is reporting from the COVID inquiry at the moment, so she's particularly well placed to answer your questions on that. Those of you listening later on podcast are just going to have to complain you didn't get a peerage instead. Uh, now, what have we got for you today? Well, the mirror has splashed on the horrific events in Nottingham that unfolded yesterday with three people stabbed and some pedestrians mown down by a van. There is more detail on that on eyewitness accounts inside. And of course, a man is under arrest and being questioned about it. At first, I want to go to good old page six, where Donald Trump's hair has made another appearance in court, this time over illegally retaining classified documents from his time as president. Now, it's not the hair, I should say, that's facing the indictment. It is actually Donald Trump. Lizzie, these are papers that crossed his desk when he was president. He's probably only taken them home because he'd done a nice crayon drawing on the back of them. But they do belong to the state and not to him, don't they? So why is this just not theft? Well, it's obviously because, you know, these are sort of like government documents. They're top secret. They're not supposed to be in his possession. And he obviously had them when he was president. But now he should have given them back. And, you know, the Americans are quite hot on sort of national security, that sort of thing. And the, the thing that's been a, obviously a real problem is he has supposedly refused to give them back. It's not just that he took them, but he has sort of frustrated the efforts of the authorities to get these papers back. And there were some incredible pictures a while back of the documents in a sort of, in I think it was in a, like a ballroom. A shower, wasn't it? A shower, yeah, where there was a sort of chandelier in this... And I just thought this is the most Trump thing you could ever imagine. <laughs> it's so like, gaudy. And then there were these like boxes of papers. And you think, what was he doing with them? I, yeah, I, we're obviously well, showering with them, I'm assuming. <laughs> not only did he have a shower with a chandelier in it, which in itself, I mean, it's just not wise. You're only going to get fungus growing on that, Donald. But um, he also allegedly instructed someone, a member of his staff, who was a co-indicted with him, uh, to take all these boxes of documents. There must have been a, a couple of dozen of them, great big cardboard boxes, and hide them in a shower when the police came looking for it, basically. Um, so that's why they're being they're being sort of both of them charged. Now, what do you think, everybody? Do you think this is um, just, like I said, a simple case of him um, taking stuff home because he's done a nice picture on the back? Or what possible reason would he have for retaining information about the United States' uh, defence capabilities, what would happen in the event of attack, things like this? They, these aren't just, you know, memoranda about a meeting on a Thursday afternoon. These are big serious issues that are on these documents or on the other side of the drawing, depending on how you look at it. Now, this all happened the day before Trump's 76th birthday. Happy birthday, Donald. And while there are some who think it won't dent his popularity as the Republican front runner for the presidential nomination, um, it was remarkable to me, at least, uh, that the, all these much feared protests around the court, they have so much security thinking the Proud Boys are going to turn up. There's going to be men in buffalo hats. It's going to be, look at that face. Oh, man, stop with the, stop with the tan, Donald. There'll be men with buffalo hats. There'll be all sorts of people there protesting because their hero is in court. And Lizzie, there was there was nobody. There was the only people that were there were the protesters shouting, "Lock him up!" Has he has he lost it? Have all these court cases actually had that kind of impact? It's really hard to know. I mean, he still retains a sort of core support, and he's still 
you know, there's still people who really do believe that he won the last election in the US and that, you know, he was robbed and all of this. And so it's hard to say. I mean, I don't know whether there are, this is not the only sort of legal proceedings he's facing. He's obviously been, um, he's always appeared in court in New York as well. Um, And I don't know whether there's an element of it that people just kind of can't be bothered to go part of all uh, of all his protests all his supporters just aren't, aren't then maybe they're just not that motivated anymore yeah. maybe they're not that fast it's hot it's really hard to say um obviously with this is all kind of part of the run-up to the next presidential election and everything's kind of really starting in earnest and yeah it's hard to know because obviously Donald Trump never really you know he always paints a picture of himself and what the situation is that is sometimes detached from reality so always slightly hard to know you know what he's saying about what's going to happen and what people around him suggest might happen and what the reality is especially because he's you know he has his own so a uh, social network platform called Truth Social. So we don't really see him on Twitter or Facebook anymore because obviously he got kicked out. And it means that sometimes he appears and I sometimes wonder whether ordinary people are a bit like, oh yeah, there he oh, is. Oh yeah, he's, he's still a thing, isn't he? <laughs> um, I like the fact that you said he's sometimes detached from reality. I'm, I'm not sure there's been a time that the, uh, he's ever been really in contact with it. Now this is about yesterday when there were no protesters uh, there was there was no one, none of his supporters at the court appearance. And there were only people waving placards and chanting, lock him up. And he still waved at them. As you can see on the photo on the page, he's just going, hi, everybody. Yes, I'm very popular. But then again, this is the guy who, when he was being driven to his uh, presidential inauguration ceremony down Pennsylvania Avenue, where all the, the seats were empty. Do you remember those scenes? Mm. There, were just, there was nobody there. And he and Melania were still waving royally out of the window for the TV <laughs> Yeah. which was and then they pretended the crowds were like massive and that every all the newspaper the like camera crews had just filmed it wrong yes <laughs> happy days of what was his name sean uh the press spoke sean spicer spicer mm-hmm. yeah who ended up on uh, the u.s version of strictly come dancing mm. deborah says he's passed his sell by date what do you think everybody do you think i'm getting a slight sense that maybe he's got a touch of the boris johnson's going on here all right when boris johnson sort of stood down he's promised to lead parliamentary rebellions from the back benches when the votes came through there were two or three when he's you know had to uh, go in a in a snit basically he's resigned um that's because he knew he wasn't going to win the parliamentary vote on his punishment so he doesn't have the support and there was talk about there being maybe a dozen resignations along with him lizzie and it was it was just nadine uh and nigel who wasn't really linked to the whole thing anyway so it maybe you know these both these guys are just turning into being a legend in their own lunch times really they're, they're full of hot air and they're busy saying that they're terribly popular and it's not over and i'll be back and all the rest of it but is it really there Mm. I think there's also when they've got both Trump and Boris Johnson have an element of that kind of stardust, that sort of, you know, that kind of magic that's quite hard to to pin down what it really is, but that makes people interested in what they're doing, for better or for worse. Um, and I think when they are very assured of themselves and their own popularity and their success and that the public remember when they were successful, mm. it, it can be hard, I think, sometimes for them and for, you know, the broader public to realise actually that's not where things are anymore. And certainly with 
Boris Johnson. I mean, he will always have a certain hold over the Conservative Party, but his chances of making a meaningful political comeback are on the on the you know downward trajectory. And I don't think I think he partly knows that. But mm. also, you know, he would never admit it. Or not saying it though, can they? No, exactly. They're, no. they're just—they both seem to be in the bin a little bit. Um, but it is still fun watching them struggle in there. Tony says Trump most likely planned to profit from the documents. Uh, he does need money because uh, this is not the end of his legal problems. Uh, so there's still this issue of provoking the Capitol riots. There's still the Manhattan court case on election fraud over the payment mm. to Stormy Daniels. There is now these 37 charges about uh, document retention and a possible 20 years in jail on that. And yesterday, E. Jean Carroll, the writer who um, accused him of rape, and the court found he did sexually assault her and awarded her £4 million damages, she's had the right to get that doubled to $8 million because after he was found guilty of defaming her, he went and defamed her again. Um, and he's such after after he lost. So he's such a loser. He's the biggest loser um, Donald Trump's ever seen. There doesn't seem to be anything, though, despite all these legal problems, which sucks that not only is he going to be out of money pretty soon, because like most billionaires, his his empire sort of financed by debt, but he's going to be out of cash and he's he's potentially facing jail time. And yet there's still nothing stopping this guy running for president. There's nothing in the US Constitution that says a criminal cannot run for office. What's wrong with America, Lizzie? Well, I think it's kind of like what you were saying a bit before about Boris Johnson as well. Like, obviously, they're in very different situations. But this is what happens when you have, um, you know, somebody goes up against the kind of structures of state and government who isn't prepared to play by conventions or rules and isn't prepared to behave in a way that you, is expected of them. They're not expected, you know, they're not prepared to, like, admit defeat to, you know, do the right thing, to apologise when they've done something wrong, to not lie. And the system kind of, it's hard for the system to cope with that. And I think yeah, that's what you're seeing in the US, you know, that they're throwing everything at him, you know, because he has, like, you know, he has done a lot of things. Yeah, he just keeps marching forward. And, you know, it, it, it's hard. I mean, I'm sure at some point, like you say, he will run out of money, maybe he'll end up in prison. Um, but it's it's hard to see at the moment how, you know, he still keeps moving because he's mm. not prepared. You know, he's not ashamed. He's not someone who's like, oh, God, I'm, I'm having a total nightmare. I should maybe just stay out of the public eye and try and fight these battles and clear my name. He doesn't care. He's like, I don't need to. They're all liars. Yeah. So, so when, you, when you said earlier on, what is it about these people that has this kind of stardust on it? I think it's the immense privilege and narcissism. That they would, they both him and Boris Johnson seem to enjoy, which is they genuinely don't think the rules are for them. They genuinely mm. have never had in their entire lives anyone tell them, no, that's bad, and here are the consequences of your actions. Here is a punishment that you must deal with yourself, as opposed to get a, you know get a service mm. for you. They've just they've never had consequences delivered upon them, and so this is perhaps the first time when they're. I feel quite sorry for them almost. They're in their fifties in Kate Boris's case, seventy six in Trump's case, and it's the first time someone has said mm. no, and they just don't know what to do. Anyway, we should have to see how that all pans out. Now, um, but first off, I want to move on to some of the problems with our own leaders. So yesterday, the COVID inquiry launched what is probably going to be 
I think, three years of hearings about the mishandling of the pandemic and if anything could be done differently. Now, Lizzie, we all know that it could. I mean, the mirror has covered this from top to toe throughout. There's the old stockpile PPE, the deals for mates, the late lockdowns, the care homes seeded with the virus, never mind the damn parties. But this inquiry is still important, isn't it? Can you What can you tell us? You were down there yesterday. What can you tell us about the, the atmosphere? What was it like? Yeah, so I went uh, to the first day of the COVID inquiry, and I'm going to go to the second day straight after this. Um, it is held in a sort of nondescript building in Paddington. Um, but the first thing you see when you arrive, you sort of come around this corner, and there was a huge number of bereaved families, mostly dressed in red, standing outside the building, all holding pictures of their loved ones and sort of holding a vigil basically outside. Um, and the atmosphere was really, you know, it was very moving, um, sort of calm, but like, yeah, very sort of, you know, that people just kind of want to stand there and remember. You, I had a chat with a couple of people, you know, there's the lots of bereaved families just want to tell their stories. They want the inquiry to really hear what they went through. And that's really important. So you have the, the bereaved families outside. And then what's been happening in the inquiry is they have what are called core participants in it. So the judges, um, Baroness Heather Hallett, is taking evidence from lots of different people. And in this first module, they're looking at how the UK prepared for COVID. So really sort of 2010 to the start of the first lockdown. What was done? What decisions could have been made differently? Is there something that you know, that the government or the NHS or anyone else could have done um, that might have saved lives or meant that the UK was better prepared when the pandemic hit. Um, and so you, they're interviewing the core participants at the moment, which is the COVID bereaved families for justice group, bereaved groups from Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, representatives of trade unions, the TUC, the British Medical Association who represent doctors, that sort of thing. So they're going through They've started yesterday, they went through some of the statements from these groups who wanted to say, you know, this is what we want the inquiry to look at, this is what's important to us. Mm. Um, and it was absolutely fascinating because I think there is an argument, you know, that COVID was an enormous trauma for the nation where, from everyone who went through absolutely traumatic bereavement to just people on sort of different sides who gave up things in their lives, didn't see their loved ones, Young people didn't get to go to school, didn't get to go to university. Everybody lost something and gave something up. And I think it's hard for people to revisit it because it was such a painful and difficult time. But this is so important because we at The Mirror and many other newspapers did endless reporting on what the government did, what they could have done differently. But we weren't able to do what the inquiry can do, which is compel evidence. So the judge, Baroness Hallett, can order Boris Johnson, Matt Hancock, whoever you like, to come to the inquiry and she can ask for their WhatsApp messages, their documents, stuff that I wish I could do. You know, we would <laughs> love to be able to do yes, that. But we, watching, we don't get to access people's WhatsApps. We don't, no, you know, we but we can't ask for that kind of information as journalists, um, but she can, she has statutory powers to do so. So I think whilst there are things about the inquiry that we already know, I think there's loads of stuff that we're going to find out over time that we haven't really had evidence before that was sort of just rumoured or suspected that we'll actually be able to pin down. And I think that's really important for people who lost loved ones, lost jobs, lost whatever, to really understand what was done differently. And also so we can learn lessons in case 
in the event of another pandemic, that we won't be in a situation where people are having to make PPE out bin bags and no one knows what's going on because we'll have prepared for it better. Well, one would hope so, although I, I, I do definitely recall that the, um, the vaccination centre was sold off soon after we finished using it. So, Well, that's the thing. You know, a lot of things that during the, the pandemic, which were considered to be good, um, like some of the contact tracing, free testing, all of these things were sort of binned off. And yeah. keeping the COVID inquiry in the headlines maybe will make, will keep that, and that legacy stuff under scrutiny, which I think is really important because it took so long to build up all of those processes, the testing, the vaccines, whatever, all of the research. And lots of people involved in that have said, why are we scaling this back? This is mad. Like this is, mm. we finally got to a good place, but the government's like, well, it's a lot of money and we've got other priorities. Maybe the COVID inquiry will teach us some things that will actually make them think that it isn't worth, you know, getting rid of all that hard work. Maybe. But so what do you think about the COVID inquiry, everybody? Do you think this is going to be a worthwhile exercise? What do you think that it should be looking into? What are you hoping it comes up with? Is it going to be a case of, you know, hauling these politicians to account in a way that even the mirror, even Lizzie and I cannot possibly do and actually compel someone like Boris Johnson to tell the truth? Or is it something else that just it's having your day in court that is something that you think would be important? Because the critics, Lizzie, are going to say, look, this inquiry was ordered as a result of public pressure. And that public pressure mostly came from the bereaved families. Um, Baroness Hallett said yesterday, she made an extraordinary statement, didn't she, saying that she is going to hear them, they're going to have their day, and that it's, it's going to be focused on what they need to hear and stuff like that. A critic would say that this is a lot of money over a very long period of time discussing things that have already happened and you cannot fix, and that it is a, a way of salving the grief, and it's not... There is nothing new we're going to find out because we know it all. We know what went wrong. We know we can we just set it there, you know, shut down the vaccine centre. Did this? That and there's so many times that when you have inquiries, they don't always change very much, do they? No, and I mean, you know, Baroness Hallett will publish her recommendations, but she can't force the government to listen to them and she can't impose criminal sanctions on people or anything like that so there is you can you can make that argument that you know that that what the consequences are we don't know but I suppose it is really it is important to understand that like I suppose for both sides of the picture actually you know a lot of the criticism that has been made was has been made by at the government by you know, by some, by the mirror and by other people, um, is that they acted too slowly, that they weren't prepared, that they didn't take the difficult decisions. People died because they, Boris Johnson flip-flopped, all of that. You know, there are people in government who say, actually, we were working as fast as we could. You know, there are things that they haven't been able to say, civil servants, people in government, that they, arguments they would make to defend their decisions and the, their handling of it. And maybe they deserve a right to do that as well. Um, and also, I think, you know, 227,000 people died, like, at, to date, and people are still dying of COVID. You know, that's a lot of people who deserve to see that due process was followed. And I, I don't know, I think, I think there is an argument to be made that it was such an extraordinary thing. It would be mad for us not to learn lessons from it. And maybe an inquiry will slightly take the heat out of some of it, like, 
you know, putting it into a courtroom, into a kind of formal airless setting where people are less partisan, will be less partisan than they are in Parliament, that, you know, they're on TV and the newspapers, that maybe there will be things that can be gained from that. Yeah. And maybe there will also be established facts. It doesn't get to be, you know, well, that's your opinion kind of yeah. said about it. It actually becomes this is what that lockdowns were too late. Lockdowns were not too late. Whatever exactly. it would be, you can actually have some kind of established objective truth mm. about the whole thing. And before you move on. I was just going to say, there's also like attempt, been attempts recently to sort of re, re-litigate history. You know, like the Telegraph WhatsApp files, lockdown files. Released Matt Hancock's WhatsApp messages. There's been a lot of effort from people in who are in that sphere to say actually we should never have done the lockdown in the first place. It was clearly a disaster. And I and to have some of these arguments with hindsight and say, you know, we should never have done any of that. And so if those arguments took hold, maybe if there was another pandemic, would we even do another lockdown? I, you know, I think there are things that, that it would be helpful for the inquiry to establish certain facts that might be useful in future well and it is almost certainly going to be useful because there is another pandemic predicted within the next decade now what do you think everybody get into the comments have you lost someone from covid do you think uh that the, the covid inquiry is on the right track that it's going the right way what are you hoping that it comes up with at the end of the day um of course it, it can't jail anybody so uh, if you've got any idle wishes for that i'm afraid they're not going to be fulfilled not on this one anyway um, now, but one thing I want to talk about before we move on to some good news, Lizzie, is that the, the TUC rep said yesterday that the, the row about Boris Johnson's WhatsApp messages and whether they're going to be applied and whether they're not and what the government's holding back, that that's risk tarnishing the whole inquiry, that people would think just by association almost that it's not going to get to the full truth or that the, the government is going to try and withhold that full truth. So how do the families feel about that? Because, you know, they're Pretty the ones... Up, I think. Um, I think the, I mean, I think the bereaved families, certainly the campaigning bereaved families are so, I mean, they're so fed up with Boris Johnson. They feel they've been very critical of his handling of the pandemic and they feel that anything associated with him is just a sort of like toxic political row that sucks the oxygen out of everything, which is certainly true quite a lot of the time. And I think, you know, the government argues that it doesn't want to set a precedent by releasing unredacted WhatsApp messages that are totally irrelevant to the inquiry. So to protect the privacy of ministers, not just Boris Johnson, but what this is really about is Rishi Sunak. It's not really about Boris. It's yeah. about number 10 trying to protect, stop their, you know, protect the prime minister and stop there being the precedent that his WhatsApps will be freely available because obviously he was heavily involved as chancellor doing furlough, doing all of that. He was in all the big meetings um, and also got fined for Partygate as well. Um, But so, you know, they say that they want, they want, they don't want to set that precedent, but the inquiry say, well, it's not for you to decide. That's our decision. Yeah. And there there is a simple way of protecting the prime minister from having his WhatsApps released, which is to not govern by WhatsApp and do it properly. Quite, yeah. Government instruction and email so that everyone can see what you're doing because that's what's yeah. called transparency now thank you for that lizzie um thank you everyone now first uh, before we finish um we have managed to find some good news for you in the world it's not all about trump and boris uh, and here it is now this should cheer up absolutely everybody who's got breast tissue breast tissue <laughs> tissue <laughs> 
breast tits, which is to say every man and woman in the country, we all have breast tissue. And a 22 year study has found that the normal outcome for people with breast cancer today is that they will live. Now, that is an astonishing change from what happened. I, I can remember 20 years ago where, you know, it was a big, massive killer and it was huge issues where, and, and arguments were being fought about it in public. It still affects 57,000 people a year. 11,000 are going to die from it. But a study of those whose disease was caught in the early stages found that, well, 14% of them would probably die within five years back in 1999. Today, it's below 5% that are going to die within five years. And for some, the risk is as low as 0.2%. We still have the lowest survival rates in Europe, so it could be better. There's still more to do. But Lizzie, is this proof, do you think, that kicking up a fuss, which is what happened about breast cancer rates, really can produce results? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a real testament to kicking up a fuss and also to the huge work that's been done by charities, campaigners, to remove the stigma of talking about cancer. Um, so much work was done around breast cancer to sort of say, you know, it's not something that's shameful. It's not because now we don't see cancer that way. But attitudes have changed quite a lot. And, you know, now people are able, to, much more able to talk about it. Women are much more aware of it. People are much more likely to go and get screened. And early screening, screening and kind of early diagnosis is so key to improving people's survival rates. So, yeah, I think amazing work has been done in the last, like, 15, 20 years to kind of really, to, to really ensure that breast cancer diagnosis isn't a death sentence at all. Yeah, and that people go on to live really meaningful lives, which is absolutely just wonderful news. <laughs> exactly. Maybe they'll their families have them still and everything else. So there's it's surgery, it's uh, better drugs, it's better genetic awareness of, of uh, being able to study the cancers. And of course, it's the screening programs and breast awareness. So if you have boobies and men, that includes you, keep checking them regularly. And if you get invited for screening, you go to the screening, okay? Because these survival rates are for those who get it caught early get it caught late you've still got trouble thank you for that lizzie we're going to let you dash now because i know you have to run across town to get to that nondescript office building in paddington for day two of the covid inquiry thank you for taking us through all that thank you everyone for watching if you're listening on podcast please leave us a review and uh, we will see you again next monday for another edition of the news agenda bye-bye